Welcome to the SQB Podcast. Today, I'm very excited to welcome Timothy Lim. Timothy is a professional illustrator, comic artist, and creator who's probably best known outside of comic book circles for creating Thump, The First Bundred Days, a rabbit reimagining of President Trump's election and the early days of his presidency. Timothy and I discussed the importance of his faith, the inspiration behind and genesis of Thump, as well as his other highly successful creations, including Black Hops, USAGI, Trump's Space Force, and his current project, Common America. I had an incredible time talking to Timothy, and I hope you have at least as much fun listening. I think you will. Okay, Timothy Lim, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here, and I'm glad that you reached out to me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very excited to, to talk to you. Um, so to start off, I'm just curious how you got into comics in the first place. Um, first of all, as, as a fan, and then uh, moving on from there, how you became a creator. Well, when I was a child, this was back in the 80s, you basically had, I guess, three staples of entertainment, your television, movies, and comic books. And comic books you could find at grocery stores or your local bookstore. Back then we had Walden Books. There was actually more than just Barnes & Noble. And so it just seemed like something that children just grew up reading. I know that my father did. Um, we used the, the, the term fan kind of tentatively because, for example, I think most people would just call us casual readers. But, I mean, I did collect comics as a reading hobby. So I grew up reading uh, Spider-Man and Ninja Turtles. And then from then on, I progressed into reading things like Transformers and G.I. Joe. But I think that that not only helped me in terms of my, my reading ability, but it also helped um, establish kind of a baseline for um, cultivating any type of artistic talent that I might have had. My mother is a, is a painter as a, as a hobby, and her brother is actually an architect. So there is kind of this through line of technical drawing that runs in my family. But I just did it as a hobby. And so comics was a, a big gateway into that. And then later on, as I was going through my graduate uh, school, an opportunity landed in my lap where I could start to, I could do merchandising artwork. And that's kind of how I got my foot in the door. It was not through a traditional means at all. I did not take any art classes growing up uh, that I chose on my own volition, definitely not in college. I think I took one credit hour of basic drawing because it was a requirement, but it was at a very elementary level. Everything else I've done, um, I've been self-taught with. But that's, you know, in a nutshell, that's kind of how I got into uh, how I got into comics as a gateway self-taught that's that's amazing um so when you when you were young and you're reading comics did it kind of start the way that that I kind of started drawing though I have no talent it's like you know you're reading spider-man and then you're thinking oh maybe I could draw spider-man right next to while I'm while I'm reading it and you just kind of attempting to uh reproduce what you're seeing on the page or or were you did you begin drawing completely separately from comics I would say that the two kind of came in tandem. I know that my mother, it's something I think is, is part of Asian culture. They typically teach their children very early on. You go on Instagram nowadays and you'll see these artists who you're thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, like the art is so good. And then you find out that they're like a 16-year-old kid from Korea or Japan or China. <laughs> and uh, I just think that's kind of funny because part of it, is that they grow up with it as a culture, but also it's the the advent of the technology that is now so universally available that you can just go to Best Buy and buy a lot of this stuff. 
And so back in the day when you're a kid and you're five years old and you're learning with pen and paper or pencil and paper and crayons, now you can just sit in front of a computer and learn these really advanced technical skills at a much earlier age. So I think it was a combination of my mother having taught my brother and I um, and us watching her draw. And then when we got into comics, we were looking at the art and it was like, oh my gosh, you can actually draw to tell stories. And I think that that ended up being the perfect combination for kind of um, fostering and nurturing that that skill set um, that if you want to call it that in terms of the ability to draw on a technical basis. So that was kind of a big revelation was that drawings don't have to just be visual art that they can they can be used in conjunction with text to tell the story. And that was kind of the genesis of thinking, hey, you know, maybe I could put these two things together and get something yeah. going. That's that's great. Um, yeah, and your and mother's it, it, influence was the funny thing about it, too, is that I actually think um, paintings are kind of boring. Like I, I just thought, that, <laughs> well, I like art. But for some reason, my attention is just not that captivated in art museums. I mean, I, I really can't even spend more than an hour in an art museum before I'd go stir crazy. And recently, it was last year, my mom and my dad and my wife and my brother, we went to D.C. and we went to the National Archives. And they have this huge art museum there. And I thought, well, it's been almost 20 years since I've set foot in an art museum. Maybe I've matured. And sure enough, mm-hmm. within maybe 30 minutes, mom and dad were sitting on a bench and they had just fallen asleep. And my wife and I were walking around. And I mean, it's this huge, like, three-level gallery. And I just thought, I'm just bored out of my mind. Like, we need to get out of here. So I I think that that really, um, that really is a differential in terms of seeing art as a static thing versus art that can be dynamic and telling a story about how you read it in sequence. And and I'm not saying that the former is is bad or anything like that. It's just a personal preference. Right. It's interesting that you say that because I, I when I used to um, I'm originally from New York. I live in Texas now. And when I used to go oh, to I'm the in museums. Oh, too. Wonderful. Oh, is that right? OK. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm, here in, um, I'm here in the Temple area. So just south of Waco. OK. I'm, I'm outside of Tyler. I don't know if you know where Tyler is. I know is. where it's... Tyler is. Yeah. OK, great. Yeah. I'm, I'm just outside of Tyler. So essentially, cool. I just tell people I'm in Tyler because then they know. Um, but it's interesting what you say, because I, I, I have. Yeah, I find a parallel with that line of thinking because when I when I was still living in New York, when I was younger and I would visit, you know, the museums in, in Manhattan um, and I would go to MoMA most of the time, I find that the only section that really captivated me was the illustration section because I could see how these drawings were being used to move along a narrative, drive a story. If it was something that was um, a piece of literature that I had read, I could I could place the image and the context of that story and and that kind of pairing of those two styles of art really appealed to me more than as you said just kind of staring and looking at a painting but you know i enjoy depending on the painting but there is something about um pairing the art with the with the narrative that makes it more compelling so I, yeah i absolutely agree with that um and it's interesting too because for example obviously during the renaissance and uh, what we consider like classical high art painting you would commission someone to do one of these, and these portraits obviously would cost a lot of money and mm-hmm. have a lot of time to make. And the people who bought them, I mean, you really take your time to study it, but you're studying a very static image, and I think you have to have a robust imagination. And at the time, as far as entertainment was concerned, I, I bet that that was very entertaining. But the reality is that when you... Um, nowadays, when you have a piece of art that's very fine like that, 
you have to be a, in a certain mindset to want to appreciate it because even you know people like me who like art i like looking at it even i can't stand i can't stare at a rembrandt for <laughs> more than like five <laughs> minutes before mm -hmm. i just think okay i need to move on and do something else and i think part of it is just the flow of information that we have and the way our entertainment has changed over time i mean i'm sure that cavemen were looking at cave paintings with the same level of dedication and care that um, most art critics will look at paintings nowadays too so it just depends on what's in your surroundings and what you're used to right i think it's a yeah it's a conjunction of the things you mentioned I, obviously the diminishment of the modern attention span but then also you know to be fair maybe a diminishment in the quality of what's considered art i mean once you yes, sir. you know i don't want to get into the whole thing but once you start calling you know one color on a canvas a brilliant piece of art how long are you going to stare at that i mean i have a lot of art in my home and i find that i'm constantly rearranging what's on the walls, right? Because I get sick of looking at the same thing every day for as much as I love it, it's stuff that I purchased because I particularly, it resonated with me. But after, you know, a couple months, I got to move it because right. I can't, <laughs> I can't just look at it anymore. So that, yeah, that, yeah, that's very interesting. That's part of just home decor. I mean, there's a reason why you do have people like designers and decorators who actually look at that stuff because there is a combination of, of, um, images that can be appealing or not depending on the, the time and the mood and the place and what you were bringing up right now is just like sort of postmodernism, and um, mm -hmm. that's a completely different topic but the, right. the irony about it is that I think a lot of people would see comics as a form of postmodern entertainment but I think that uh, when we're looking at that we're also looking at what is defined as art and what's not and obviously that's a very complicated subject to go into I'm of the mind that, and I guess this goes into any subject of Catholicism or religion in general, but as, as God, our creator, created things with beauty and truth and design, I think that art, in a sense, has to reflect, uh, art, uh, art has to reflect a sense of truth, beauty, and design. And that's why one argument that I've made, even in my college years, was that uh, even non-representational art has to have some element of technicality to it to be considered art. If you tell me that you took uh, paint and threw it on a canvas and you want to call that art, it doesn't represent anything and much less any type of truth or beauty to it. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, that beauty ends up being subjective. But I think in reality, when you look at tests of psychology and tests of the human mind, if people are being honest with themselves, we all seem to have a standard of beauty that tends to be um, a majority opinion. And I, I, I think that from a philosophical standpoint, I think that there is um, something that we recognize as being truly good, truly beautiful, and truly truthful. Mm. And I think that a lot of postmodernism has rejected that. And I think that's another reason why a lot of modern art uh, is just not appealing, like you said. I 100% agree. Someone I heard someone once say, um, I can't remember who it was, but that the real art, so to speak, of the modern postmodern movements is not the piece produced itself, but the marketing for that piece. So in other words, like <laughs> what you what you can get away with. That's really yeah. the art. And I found yes. that very interesting. I think that that's yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I don't know how that that came about, but it seems to be absolutely the case. Um, so let's just um, I'm curious, what, what were some of your what, what were you reading when you were young? What were some of your favorite characters or, or writers or storylines in, oh, in comics? So at the time, I wasn't focusing so much on writers. And the reason why is because it seemed like every book I picked up was good. Like, mm. I don't remember as a maybe it's because I didn't have any taste. But <laughs> as a kid, 
every comic I read was entertaining. Like there was no such thing as a bad comic. What era now, about was this? What what decade were we talking about? We're looking generally? at um, l- mid to late eighties through okay. the, through the mid nineties. So a good ten yeah. year period. Well, well that's when that, stuff was kind of interesting still. Oh yeah, and it was great. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned it before, but like uh, Spider Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ninja Turtles, I read some Ghostbusters, I read G.I. Joe, the Transformers, a, ha- a little bit of Batman, not too much. Mm-hmm. I almost invo- avoided DC titles altogether. I thought mm-hmm. Marvel was a ton of fun. I mean, all the color, all the characters were so colorful. It painted, it, it also, as a child, it painted a worldview of how being an adult was fun. And mm-hmm. it wasn't something to dread. I mean, as children, we were always taught, like, just hold on grasp your childhood as much as you can you only get one shot you need to enjoy it but i just remember like for example with spider-man i came into reading it at the time where he was still married to mary jane watson and i just remember they just had this healthy loving relationship they had no children at the time but they were just a fun couple they were always going on their own adventures and then coming home at the end of the day to kind of talk to each other about kind of their their mini adventures uh, mary james was more slice of life because at the time she was a model and i remember like the same thing happened with gi joe also in gi joe which was not a superhero book it's a military book uh, no one in my immediate family is in the military but i think my appreciation came from reading gi joe because it was the way that my child my child brain could could interpret this without having to witness let's say the horrors of war you see these characters that are kind of larger than life but they're not superheroes they're just everyday people and they're um, going through their own struggles with um, interpersonal relationships and obviously with terrorists and they all Mm -hmm. loved america and it kind of all fed together especially at the time reagan was president and so you still had this this air of patriotism that was not frowned upon or taboo or stigmatized. So I think that these comics really did foster um, a, a healthy upbringing as far as like, I don't feel like I was being fed rubbish. I, I took away a lot of very important things in culture that it reinforced like a moral, political um, and ethical standpoint and, and really formed the bedrock uh, and foundation of how I thought that entertainment should be in, in a healthy way. There's a lot of interesting stuff you just said right there. So let's let's unpack a little bit of it. Um, first of all, Spider-Man, right? I absolutely agree. And he was one of my favorites when I was young too. And what you see with Peter Parker is historically, I, I, I don't know what's going on now because I kind of dropped all this stuff for obvious reasons. But Historically, no one no one really had more problems going on than Peter Parker. Yet at the same time, you never saw him falling into despair or playing playing victim status or, or, or any of that stuff. He he still had fun. He still relied on his his very close relationship with his family, with his with his wife at the time, with his Aunt May, obviously, and 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 drew on the wisdom of his Uncle Ben to never be bogged down in in hopelessness. And I think that a lot of that is missing now. From a lot of comics and then the other thing you say is very interesting and, and, and you can respond to any of this afterwards is um so reading gi joe kind of fostered a respect for the military for you that's very interesting and, it, and it's very interesting that that something would be so patriotic in a mainstream comic that i don't think again right now would be be very popular especially in in the, the mainstream comic book publishing industry because i definitely see that respect from you and appreciation, even in something like USAGI, right? It's very well right. researched. I noticed that 
a lot of the stuff about the military. It's not, you know, for a book about a bunny, <laughs> it's very, it's very detailed, very well researched. So, um, do you feel that a lot of that has kind of been stripped away from, from comics now that kids aren't getting those kind of those values, that patriotism, that 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 notion of healthy family life? Is that is that all really missing, or am I just am I just being too taking too bleak of a view on what's going on? No, I, I think it's sorely missing. And um, I guess we'll, let's start from what you said before and go forward. So as a Catholic, we have this um, this phrase called Catholic guilt. And I didn't even know about it until way <laughs> later in life when I was in college and interacting with people who were not of the same faith as, as me. But even from Protestants, they would you know, joke about Catholic guilt. And I never understood it because I just thought that was something that we all had. And I remembered that in the comics especially – um, especially from the 80s and the 90s. Now, Peter had already kind of, um, he'd kind of come to terms with it. But I know that in his interactions with his wife uh, and with May, and especially with Daredevil, who was a Catholic superhero, mm-hmm. they always had this, they never forgot. Um, they, I think they had already forgiven themselves for what they had done, but that lingering stain of their sin, uh, and in, in Peter's case, the sin of omission, because he could have stopped someone, he didn't, and had an obvious ramification and i think that that guilt stayed with him now we know that peter's probably not a catholic um but typically whenever he's depicted at family funerals for example um it's obvious that he's from some sort of christian denomination so that Mm -hmm. always kind of stuck with me because it's the idea that you could be a hotshot man like you can be the greatest person ever but you should always do the right thing because anytime you let your guard down, something can happen that will affect someone else. Um, and so I grew up with that. I, I always thought that was such a healthy principle to grow up with. And that it wasn't necessarily a Catholic one. It was just something that I felt was rooted in a tradition, a moral tradition of um, of power and what you do with it and the responsibility that uh, comes with it, which is why it's like a classic line. Everyone knows it. who has at least seen the movies. Right. And, um, I think what's happened with the recent culture is, and this is the part that bo- that boggles my mind, I'm sure that people my age, so people in their 30s um, going into their 40s, they grew up with the same thing that I did. But I think what happened was, quote, outgrow uh, the medium. So typically mm. around like their, their 10s going into their teens, they discover girls, they discover MTV, and then the medium goes away. And then they go, they go with something else. And I think that the adults in the room who have a different mindset and mentality, I think that their influence overrode these kids. Now, what happens is they get into adulthood. They, they, they think to themselves, like, man, you know, I gave up a good portion of my life trying to pursue other things. But you know what? I remember nostalgically how cool that was. Well, now they're in positions of power where they can actually write those stories. But instead mm-hmm. of writing the way that they were entertained by, they're now writing in the way that they were indoctrinated by. And I think that that is key. Um, I was having this discussion last night with a friend of mine who does a YouTube channel. But the question I asked him was, so I'm Asian, so for people who don't care or can't tell, but... I don't know where along the line it got to the point where people started saying, you know what, I really like these characters, but I really want a character who's me. So they want this self-insert character. And typically, I, I don't know how politically correct you want to get, but typically... You can say whatever people, you want. <laughs> they're typically <laughs> like black or Hispanic or they're part of like the LGBTQ, BBQ movement or whatever. And I, 
it's such a foreign concept where they're like, oh, I love Spider-Man. I love Ghostbusters. I love Batman. I love Superman. But I wish they were black. And <laughs> I just thought, mm-hmm. that's odd. Because growing up, there was never a time when I thought to myself, I want a character who superficially looks like me. That that to me is so foreign. Even like Daredevil, he was not in my top five of favorite um characters and he's the catholic so you would Mm -hmm. think oh well you would identify with the character um who's probably moral uh moral fiber you're most in line with and i said no because there's other factors that play into it and it has nothing to do necessarily with the identity in a way i think that that's almost patronizing to think that way but there's a lot of people out there who who see it that way. And I have not formulated anything yet as far as like, why is that? Like, why is it that certain people um, only gravitate to the superficial as opposed to the totality of a person's identity? That's a, that's a really good point. And, and I think that um, one of the characters that really resonated with me, and it was actually, it took an episode of the animated show to bring it fully to the forefront was Nightcrawler. Yes. And, um, he certainly doesn't look like anybody, right? Because he's got blue skin. He kind of looks like an elf. He's got three fingers or two and a thumb, depending on how you want to describe it. He's a super, he's a super devout Catholic. I think in the animated episode, he's actually a monk at that point. Yes. I think he's a Franciscan. Yeah, that's right. And um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and um, he's incredibly devout. But at the same time, in the history of the character, he's, he's, Super fun-loving. So the thing about Daredevil is he's kind of always dour, right? He's <laughs> definitely got that Catholic guilt going on. And uh, he's got that tragic background. But Nightcrawler, you know, aside from being a monk, he's like a swashbuckling adventurer. And he just loves life. He loves his fellow man. And, and, and he, he transcends everything because of that odd appearance. Right. Is, that, is that a character that maybe resonated a little more with you than, than a Daredevil would have? Or, or have you not considered that? No, he was actually my favorite X-Man. I, I was not big into X-Men because it was a little too soap operatic for me. Mm-hmm. It, it was definitely, I, I always felt it was like the general hospital of comics where it was like, <laughs> I was like, look, I just want like fun, zany adventures and whatnot. So I actually, I didn't like any of the principal cast. So I didn't like the the people that people normally like, uh, Cyclops, Wolverine, Jean Grey, eh, not my bag of tea, but mm-hmm. Nightcrawler I definitely liked, because you were right, uh, he was always so chipper, he was always so jolly, I remember he always spoke in um, like pseudo-English German, so he's always saying like, yeah, nine, Fraulein, like he was always throwing <laughs> those words out, but That's the right. other thing that I appreciated about him, besides his faith, um, because every every Catholic priest I've known since childhood, they were all joyful and fun-loving none of them were dour stereotypes they were all very exuberant and full of life um, and healthy and um, manly in that in that sense mm-hmm. um, the other thing i liked about him though was even when you gave him to a, a writer who maybe didn't understand the faith from a personal standpoint they at least made him human and by that i mean that um there were times where he was not chased. We'll put it that way. He definitely mm-hmm. got mm-hmm. around and had a few ladies, but I think he always acknowledged it. So he always was like, "Ah, like I, I shouldn't have done that. Like, <laughs> this is going to kill me on Sunday morning. And I just thought that was funny because it's like, they're not saying that they're endorsing that type of behavior. You just know that that's part of his character. He's always going to try and do the right thing, but he's a human being with his vices and flaws and whatnot. And um, it's funny that you mentioned that, though, because so my co-writer, Mark Pellegrini, 
he's not Catholic. Um, his his father was, his mother was not, um, and he's kind of a-religious. He's not, he doesn't have a, a strong religious philosophy. Um, he's still mm-hmm. kind of, I guess, coming to terms or just exploring a little bit. And he asked me a lot of questions, but even he appreciated Nightcrawler as a character, and he says that as a writer, that episode of the X-Men animated series, it doesn't even matter what your faith is. You'd be hard-pressed not to look at that and that particular episode where he confronts Mystique, his mother, and not be moved by it because it's an honest representation of who he is and what he represents in the episode for people who haven't seen it. So Nightcrawler um, confronts Mystique, who's his mother, uh, and it's kind of obvious because they're both blue. (laughs) But there's a flashback where Mystique uh, was impersonating a beautiful woman, but when it came time to give birth, obviously the baby was blue. And so it turns out that she takes the baby Nightcrawler and like throws him over uh, a waterfall and just thinks that you know he he died or whatever, and so she says to him, "I never loved you at all. Like I all I hated you. I resented you for destroying like what would have been my perfect life. You just messed it up. Like how does that make you feel?" And Nightcrawler's like, "I don't hate you. I just feel pity for you." And you think that that's it because she leaves and she's kind of in a scuff like, "Oh, you're such a moron" or whatever. But then there's a final flashback at the end of the episode, which shows that right before she throws the baby off the cliff, she's tearing up like she's crying. So it's obvious that she's lying to herself like she loves the baby, but there's obviously an emotional conflict there. She can't reconcile her greed with her love for her child. And I just thought, like, that's how you that's how entertainment used to be. Like, and I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure that the the writers were probably not religious. They probably weren't even right leaning. But Probably they not. just knew. They said, like, we have an opportunity to tell a beautiful story um, with the character. Let's just do it. It's not something that would ever air on television or be uh, greenlit nowadays because of our culture. No, and, and that's 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 tragic. That's that's a big part of the reason why I started this whole thing is I I, I want people of our of our mindset and our values to be more involved in these things because what right what a tremendous episode. What a tremendous piece of, of animated entertainment. That was mainstream. This was on, I believe it was on, it aired on weekday afternoons, right? Like after school and sometimes on Saturdays. And you would come home and you would watch it. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't fringe, that's for sure. It was outside of maybe Batman the Animated Series. I think it was the most popular animated superhero cartoon ever. Right. And now, like you said, it would never air. It would never be greenlit. It would never be considered. And and, and, and Go ahead. There was another, speaking of that, uh, I'm going to forget if I don't say anything. Even in Batman the Animated Series, I'm glad you, you brought that up. Because there was an episode that involved Rupert Thorne and his best friend in uh, when he was a kid, who was a priest. Oh, so yeah. his best friend grew up to be a priest. And I think you remember the episode. I don't remember. No, it was not nominated for an Emmy. That was um, the Robin episode. Mm-hmm. But Rupert Thorne, he's the, the thug, the, the kind of the gangster in the Batman Animated Series. And there's a part where... They show a they flashback to when he was a, a kid and he had a friend, and uh, they were like playing chicken with like the train tracks or something. And you know Rupert Thorne's a bad egg, and there's a twist where it turns out that his friend like basically threw him off the train track so he wouldn't be hit by a train. But in return, the kid was hit by the train and lost his leg. Well, the kid ends up becoming a priest, and he's the one trying to talk Rupert Thorne into doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rupert Thorne is like, well, why should I do it? And he's like, 
if for nothing else, do it for me because I had to give up something to help you. And he pulls his pant leg up and shows that his leg is made of metal, showing that, you know, that's the twist. It's like, right. I gave up something to help you. And you see it a lot of times in other types of fiction, like, for example, Les Miserables. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is there's kind of a political undercurrent in Les Mis. I mean, I think it's been embraced by the left, but they completely ignore the the what I consider the main plot, which is about redemption. It's the idea that it doesn't matter your status in life. It doesn't matter what has happened to you. You wax and wane. You, you go from rich to poor. But there's an afterlife, and you should be doing things that foster um, that because that's the, that's the reward that awaits you at the end of everything. Um, and I think like that's all entertainment that does that doesn't necessarily have to be Catholic in its intent. But I think that because Catholicism, I, I, you and I are both believers because mm-hmm. we feel like it's so. In it's it is the truth with a capital T that right. any storyteller who is trying to tell a true story will end up by nature telling a Catholic story uh, in consequence. I think that's absolutely right. That's that's exactly right. And I think that those those values because they're they're inherent, and a lot of right. people spend a lot of time pushing them down. But if they really examine themselves. They'll see that those things are there. If they allow them to come through in their creations, they're going to. And, and like you said, whether they're Catholic or not, um, of course, I want more Catholics to be involved <laughs> in these kind of things. But yeah, I, I, I think that, that I'm very afraid that without some kind of real movement taking off, and, and of course, you're a, big, you're a big inspiration for this, that those kind of stories being told, we're not going to see them anymore. Because we're slowly going the way of irreligiosity, right? Like mm-hmm. it's 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 almost like I say, um, it's not that atheism is the predominant mindset. It's 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 more apathy. People just don't yes. think about God. It's not that they think about him and reject him, and that's almost more dangerous, right? Right. Because you become that that apathy spreads to other areas of of life, and unless you're being told you're supposed to care about something, you don't know what you care about. Um, so I'm assuming that your family life, uh, instilled a lot of very healthy values in you and you were, you were raised in the faith, I'm assuming. Yes. My mother and my father are both Catholic. They're, we're genetically, we're Chinese, but they grew up in the predominantly Catholic, uh, Philippines. And so they moved here in the 1970s. They had me in the eighties. And I think it's because of their experience as immigrants from a country that teeters constantly between second and third world. Mm. It's still it's rife as corruption today as it was back in the 70s and 80s after the Americans had left post-World War II. I think that that instilled a great deal of patriotism in me as well. Like it really informed my my political mindset because Mm -hmm. uh, it was always this idea of I always knew that my parents came from a very. Um, non-American place, so we'll put it that way. Right. So that, that gratefulness was not inherent. Was not inherited. It was instilled. And I noticed that a lot of my um, my classmates who are not patriotic, in fact, they kind of hate or despise America. It's probably because they've they they're um, what's the word for it? Um, they take it for granted. It's mm-hmm. just something that you don't think about because you've lived here for so long, but you travel enough. You go to other countries like Europe or Asia um, or, you know, Africa or South America, and you learn very quickly that there are some 
perks to living in America, some big ones. I, I spent a lot of time mm-hmm. in Europe. Off and on, I spent about two years between France and Austria, and they have their beauties for sure. Like, there's a, a general peace there that we don't necessarily have here in America, but there's it comes at a huge sacrifice. And uh, the sacrifice is, in my opinion, like very Stepford Wives-ish. It's not something that will dawn on you uh, very quickly until you spend, you know, maybe two or three weeks there. And then you start to notice these things and uh, you realize it's very, very fragile. Whereas in America, I don't believe the fragility is there because I think one thing we have going for us is even in times when I feel like things are bleak, I think that there's a silent majority that that will fight. And I think that that's the that's part of our strength is that we ha- we're a very self-reliant very, and very independent people. And um, that's very reassuring. And I, I would rather have that than um, a false sense of security. I see the same thing a lot in Catholic circles, too. For example, um, my wife is a convert. One of my very good friends is a, is a convert. And I find that they never for a second take the faith for granted because they had to come through some kind of struggle to get there, either either purely an intellectual struggle or in a lot of in a lot of instances, it's a struggle with their family who either raise them in a different faith, hold to a different faith, or they, they, there was a journey. They didn't just um, – now, I'm a cradle Catholic. You're a cradle Catholic. But these converts, they remind me to never take the faith for granted, right, not to become complacent because it's the same thing as you said with, with knowing what's outside of the United States. You don't take for granted living in America. Right. And not just that, but um, as cradle Catholics too, and I think that um, – I don't know how you feel about this per se, but I think there is a major side effect to Vatican II that happened. Um, when I grew up in Catholic schools, so I went mm-hmm. to parochial school, I went to an all-boys Catholic high school, and our academic education was really good, so it really prepared mm-hmm. us for college. But I will say that our theological education was extremely poor because yep. it wasn't it wasn't until college that I, we were I was asked the hard questions like the really hard questions um, by atheists, by Protestants, everyone. Because then you, you, you realize really quickly that outside of the bubble of a Catholic education that you have enemies and attackers on all sides. Um, mm-hmm. They're all united. Um, that's the one thing that the Protestants and the atheists will agree on is that uh, Catholics are terrible and need to be like taken down a notch or whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I remember going back to my, um, my high school and talking to our principal and I was like, you guys need to teach a course on apologetics. And yep. it's like, oh, we do teach a course on apologetics. You got it on your third year. And I just remember that third year education. And I go, that was not it. Like whatever <laughs> I took, it was not enough. And I was, I graduated out of a class of, I think, 350 boys. I graduated 13th in my class. Like my, my uh, record, I never made anything below a B, like the four years I was in high school. Uh, my religion grades were an A++, like very, very good for wow. what uh, was required at the time for knowing. And still, I found that a lot of that was so inadequate compared to what we had to face. And a lot of it had to deal with this. In parochial school, they assume that you were more than likely going to go to the Catholic high school, which meant, oh, well, your theological education will come there. In that high school, the priests who were older, they assumed that they were still living under the pre-Vatican II mindset where you're going to get the foundation of your education in parochial school. So what ends up (laughs) happening is you leave uh, both institutions without getting really anything other than Jesus loves you. He died for you. 
uh, <laughs> pray, <laughs> go to church. Like, that's great, but that's not the meat and potatoes of what you need to survive. Um, and yeah. I've noticed, I, I think you're completely right. The converts I have met, they not only love the faith, but they're better at explaining it, it than cradle Catholics are. Because oh, 100%. 100%. My, my good friend has just become a de facto apologist because by nature of the fact that he converted and and he's he's very intellectually minded so he absorbed everything he's read all the fathers i mean that's what brought about his conversion and then he, he started digging into the history of the church the history of tradition okay what did we really traditionally teach and people you know in his old friend circles and his own family start questioning and attacking him and so he has to formulate defenses right so he's now basically just a just an, an, an incredibly effective apologist for the catholic faith and that's that's the kind of thing that being a convert can bring about because yeah you know the vatican to the vatican to the, the the dynamic of that is you kind of get like you said it's kind of like the it's kind of like the hulk hogan version of of the faith you know so, <laughs> say your prayers and take your vitamins you know and, uh, <laughs> and that's about you know that's about it you don't get you don't get the extensive kind of stuff i realized about 10 years ago um when I, when I came back to the faith with any seriousness, because I, I had kind of strayed for a while, not, not really practicing, I realized I didn't know anything. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about the faith. I had to start reading like crazy, like nowhere in my education, none of the Sunday school, none of the catechism classes from my youth taught me anything. So I really embraced that kind of convert mindset. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll, yeah, I think a lot more Catholics need to be doing that like re-examine what you think you know you probably don't know much no you don't and i mean don't get me wrong i don't either i mean we listen to uh, i don't know if you're familiar with like father taylor martin not father uh, dr taylor marshall we listen oh sure to yeah i had him on the had him on the website he did an interview for us oh good good that's fantastic mm -hmm. i'll make sure to tell my wife because uh, she listens to him almost every day um, and then there's obviously like church militant, but you have these other people, like, for example, like Faith Goldie. Now, I don't think Faith Goldie is a Roman Catholic. I think she's actually like an Eastern Rite. Yeah, I think she's Eastern Rite, yeah. Yeah, and she's up in Canada. And mm -hmm. what, what we're noticing, and you'll notice it too with internet culture and memes and stuff, and this is where it kind of ties into the election and uh, just our weird political sphere as it is, but a lot of people who are memeing, and there's this one meme I love, but I think it's actually based on PewDiePie, but it's basically like the... I think they call him like the yes guy or the no guy. I think you know what I'm talking about. It's I that, think so. Uh -huh. It's that that guy is a profile shot and it's this like kind of manly man with like a strong nose and like a, a chiseled beard. Oh, that. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. and, and typically like people like on the left, you'll have this cartoon of kind of what like a, a typical soy boy looks like <laughs> ranting and raving and being like, oh, my gosh, you mean to tell me that you're going to go out there and win? and make money and provide for your family and have a wife and children. And then you have that guy on the right and he just says, yes. Mm -hmm. and, and that all stems from kind of like this rejection of postmodern progressivism and an embrace of traditional roles. And with the traditional roles is a form of Catholicism because you find a lot of people who have lived uh, maybe a decade or more in kind of maybe a pseudo hedonistic society They've kind of embraced it, but they're still conservatives. But now they're rejecting it almost wholesale mm -hmm. and being like, you know what? Maybe the Catholics are right. Maybe there was something to be said about um, gender roles. And even if we don't necessarily embrace kind of the stereotype of the quote unquote barefoot and pregnant woman at home with four kids, which is stupid to begin with, but just mm -hmm. embracing the idea of 
hey, you know, maybe women like to be mothers. Maybe they like to be devoted. Maybe yep. men like to just do manly things. All of that is, like we said before, rooted in truth and is therefore rooted in a form of Catholicism. So, I mean, I think that that's, I think that's good. Like, I'm very optimistic. Um, and like I said, looking at things like the Catholic Coalition for Trump, uh, looking at the numbers from the last election and showing how Catholics actually outvoted um, Democrats as far as like their candidate and looking forward to this election, I am hoping and I pray every day that um, our nation and especially our youth and our Catholics will start embracing their faith because they've kind of lived in the wilderness. They've had their prodigal son moment where they've gone and uh, kind of live whatever lifestyle they want to, but they choose based on its its tendency to not be very rewarding in the long term <laughs> to come back right. uh, and embrace what they what they left. I see a lot of these quote unquote Catholics for Biden, and usually what it comes down to is the same thing that we were just talking about. They're completely ignorant of what the faith actually teaches. So it's good enough for them for someone to say, for a candidate to say, I'm a Catholic. And they go, oh, I'm a Catholic too. So I right. guess you're my guy. But if you press them on the actual issues, abortion being obviously number one, yeah. they don't really know what weight the church gives to that, that that supersedes so much of the other consideration. They don't know that. They think it's just kind of one among a whole bunch of issues, man, and like – Biden's got it right on all the other stuff. He's for the environment. And it's like, no, the church doesn't teach that and it doesn't work that way. And, and that's a good point, too, because so a lot of them don't know what the five non-negotiable positions of the Catholic Church are. And they're very they're political in nature because they're they're rooted in typically items re regarding life and the nature of murder versus not. But mm -hmm. the other thing, too, about it is that I think we have had a, a Catholicism that's fostered so much emotive emphasis uh, the idea mm. of the feeling versus let's say the rationale uh, and reasoning aspect so it's like oh but the liberals they they're empathetic they feel for Ill illegal immigrants they feel for uh, a, a woman's right to choose and the reality is that the catholic church has had such a rich tradition of rational thought i mean the, re the entire reason why we reward certain saints with doctors of the church is because their theology is almost so flawless that you would hello and another friend of ours recently oh sorry you, you you cut out for a second can you maybe just repeat the last like 30 seconds of what you said yeah sure sure sorry in, about that in the catholic church we have great thinkers great rationalists that mm -hmm. are so revered that we call them doctors of the church. And I was telling my wife and another friend of ours who you might know, he's a, a journalist for the Washington Times, Douglas Ernst. Sure. I said that I've noticed a tendency, I know something with myself as far as politics are concerned. So I will listen to someone talk and I'll say, hey, I like what that guy is saying. Like they seem to be very logical. And I'll find out after the fact that they're Catholic or that they're ex-Catholic. So mm -hmm. Why is it that what they're saying, even if it's conservative in nature, um, because there's a lot of conservatives out there who I think say good things, but there's something about them that I don't feel like is, is rooted in reason or has been processed correctly, even though their conclusion is correct. And they almost always end up being Catholic. And my thinking about this is what I told my wife and my friend. I said it's because Catholics, because we have a foundation of dogma, doctrine, and tradition. And in a way, 
even a nominal Catholic who has done what he needs to to be catechized, he already has instilled in him kind of a jurisprudence. There's a hierarchy of law and order in them, and that's what makes them so logical and rational in their thinking, uh, which is why like a lot of Protestants, they read G.K. Chesterton. Why not? Because the man is wise. Uh, he was a very good Catholic. Mm -hmm. uh, he had some very prudent things to say. And I think that's another reason why on our Supreme Court, you have a lot of Catholics and why traditionally in America, we used to associate the Irish with policemen. And it's because right. <laughs> they have instilled in them as much as they have the guilt <laughs> that we typify, <laughs> they have the law and order aspect in them as well. So I think that the rational Catholic will gravitate as they should towards conservatism. Whereas I think a Catholic who has been prioritizing the emotive aspects of Catholicism go for the liberal side, even though I think the former definitely trumps the latter in terms of your priorities. That's that's an excellent point. I think it, that's exactly the way it goes. And the thing is, you know, it's it's exceedingly difficult to argue against emotionalism. And that's why the left really runs on it, because it's 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 nearly impossible to formulate a cohesive, rational argument against it. They just right. they'll just say things like, oh, you, you know, you're cruel or you don't you don't feel for these people and you don't feel for that people. And it's it's actually quite the opposite that the Catholic Church has. As you said, the intellectual tradition and also the Catholic Church understands the true definition of love, which is to will the good of the other, the greater right. and ultimate good. And uh, sometimes that that supersedes what might be immediately emotionally um, reassuring. And they don't like that. No, they don't. And it, it is easier, especially in our day and age with marketing and stuff like that. It is much easier to appeal to the emotive mm -hmm. side because – for example, like um, people who follow me on Facebook or Twitter, I like cute animal videos. And the reason mm -hmm. why is because they, um, they they make your day brighter and it's quick. You just have to watch like a five second clip and automatically like your blood pressure will go down. But that's that's very emotive. Um, we know what elicits and triggers certain things as far as emotional reactions go in a human person. It takes a little bit more effort to go the extra step. And to actually like cognizantly um, come to a conclusion or, or think something through. So most people don't want to do that. Some people don't even have the time to do it. And yeah. I think the left has been very good in terms of capitalizing on it. Um, and some of these things are just they're just objectively true. For example, I was looking at um, the replay from the debate uh, last week where um, President Trump says to Joe Biden, like, I you called the military. Um, this pejorative and he says mm -hmm. I did not and he's like you did and Joe <laughs> Biden's like well play the tape then and he's like well I will and <laughs> the thing is it's on tape in fact the guy who was in the background like I think he had a TikTok video where he was like I was there and this is what happened mm -hmm. but the reason they do that the reason why he can lie like that is because he knows that once that debate is over who's actually going to go and look at it yep. and no one just has the time. Um, and so a lot of people are, are allowed to kind of get away scot-free with doing things like that because they just appeal to that. Because there's nothing more emotionally appealing than being called on a lie and just telling someone, you're a liar. Because mm -hmm. then the onus of responsibility is on the other guy <laughs> to, to prove his point. Well, you, 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 I'm sure you're aware of how often we see 
people saying Trump never disavowed white supremacists. And there's like 20 clips out there. <laughs> if someone takes two seconds to look of him doing exactly that, but the emotional reaction, you know, it's, it ties into the idea of instant gratification. This makes me feel good. This makes me feel right. I don't need to look into anything beyond that. I know that I feel good and therefore good feelings mean I'm correct. Right. It's very dangerous. I, I don't know. I honestly don't know how we turn people away from that. I mean, obviously, we we try to tell them to to look <laughs> look into things more deeply, but I don't I don't uh, I don't know how you you instill it in people to want to do so. It's it's a problem. I, I think a part of it is a combination of. So, for example, when I was taking physics in uh, high school, it was my hardest course. Like I just. I couldn't wrap my head around it. It was so strange and such a foreign concept to me. Um, it was really, really tough. It was the toughest course I've ever taken in my life besides organic chemistry. But then something happened. When I was in college, my professor, he was a nerd. Um, he, but he, <laughs> I remember that one time, it was our, like our second week of class, and he was um, explaining uh, FUMA, force and balance equals mass times acceleration. And he used Superman as his example. So, and he said it so casually, like he was just like, all right. So we got Clark Kent and he's here on the street <laughs> and he jumps up with a force of whatever and something clicked. And the funny thing was that he didn't say anything that was not untrue from what I was taught in high school. He presented it in a way that was palpable. And I think that because human beings have this, our brains are, are programmed to kind of be nourished and to be fed with something that's enriching. Like when you find someone who you feel like is very, not only intellectual, but they're actually giving you real knowledge, not fluff. You mm -hmm. can't wait to hear more because you want to hear the explanation. Like, why do you explain it like this? Why do you say it like that? And I think that that type of thing is needed in the way that we, we make persuasive arguments. And I think that's why, for example, I think that uh, Taylor Marshall is more effective than uh, than Bishop Barron. I think Bishop Barron appeals more to an emotive, like almost touchy feely side of, of Catholicism, whereas I think mm -hmm. um, I think Taylor Marshall is a lot more practical. He's he's a lot more hard hitting, and he'll tell you a truth no matter how you know <laughs> how much you you might not want to hear it. And uh, it reminds me of this friend of ours who he graduated from UCLA, and he was ever since we were kids he was always a devout catholic he never strayed from the faith at all and i remember he was telling me one time about the interpretation of rendering unto caesar what is caesar's rendering unto god what is god's most catholics um for through no fault of their own they they look at that as almost like the rationale for taxes or the place of religion versus state the idea mm -hmm. that if the state tells you to do something because they have ownership of something you are obliged to render to the state what belongs to the state. But my friend, he told me this thing and it, it always, it blew my mind because I had never thought about it that way. And I don't think it's wrong. He said, well, the, you know, the deeper meaning of that is that what Jesus says is what is on the coin. And someone says, Caesar. And he says, okay, we'll render that unto Caesar, which is Caesar's. But the most important part about it is the image. The coin is made in the image of Caesar, therefore it belongs to Caesar. But man is rendered in the image of God. So between the two, <laughs> coinage or people 
what is the greater value? It's people. People belong, belong to God. The material belongs to whoever it's made in the image of. And I just thought, anytime I'm talking to someone who um, I feel like might be converted or is craving that, I always bring that up because it, it never ceases to, to kind of blow their minds in terms of, oh my gosh, I've never heard it that way before. And it's like, yeah, sometimes I just feel like it's our presentation that needs some some help. I think that's absolutely right. Um, I, I, I find myself constantly going on about... Um, you know, the idea of this this website and this podcast is that sometimes you have to be subversive, for lack of a better term. I, 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 I love traditional icons. I love reading the scriptures. I love reading apologetics. But I don't feel that in our day and age, especially for a certain age range and a certain mindset, that that's going to bring people to the truth of the Catholic faith. I think if you can place those things into popular culture, those values and those ideas, you're going to bear much more fruit than if you're hitting them over the head with Aquinas all day. Not, <laughs> right. in, not initially, you know, I like to say like that, that comes later, you know, Yeah. but to break through the ice, you need something else, which is, which is why I like the idea of, of comics that have any of those traditional and Catholic values in them. Um, obviously your stuff. And then, um, I'm assuming you're familiar with, um, and this actually ties back into the, the uh, enjoyment of GK Chesterton kind of being a litmus test. Um, but are you familiar with Doug Tenapel? Yeah, I've been on his show countless times. Oh, like, is, that, is that right? Okay, Yeah, great. 20, so, uh, 25 times at least. Uh, okay, so I, you would know that. I don't believe he's Catholic. He's not. But at the same time, I know he has a love for, for Chesterton, and obviously the majority of his works, I mean, maybe not too much in Earthworm Jim, but all his, all his other books, there's always an underlying plot that's, that's, that's subversively pointing to God. Right? right or to faith and and I love that so a lot of his work really resonates with me because it because it does do that um and Doug if you're listening I'd love to have you on the, <laughs> on the show um hey, if you need me to, I'll, I'll put in a good word for you that would be great I mean I've had some limited interactions with him on Twitter I did back Earthworm Jim one and two Doug so you know <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but 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 I like that because it because it does resonate when I first read one of his books I had no idea what his views were or anything. I said, oh, I remember Earthworm Jim from when I was a kid. This this is a new book by the guy. I don't I can't remember if it was Ghostopolis or... Uh-huh. Um, but I started seeing values that I recognized, that I understood, truths that I understood in this, in this comic book. And I said, this is... I love this. This is great. Why aren't more people doing this? And then also not, not all that long ago, I was reading... Um, I was going back and rereading actually some uh, Usagi Yojimbo comics, yes. uh-huh. and there was one that. Uh, by the way, I just got I just got to confirm this. So so, <laughs> USAGI, right? Yes. That, that that is a play on Usagi. Yes. Meaning meaning Usagi, rabbit. Meaning rabbit. <laughs> Japanese. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Just wanted to confirm that. That was my theory. <laughs> okay. So there was this issue of Usagi. I don't know if you've read a lot of Usagi Yojimbo, but there's this one issue where a woman. Um, she's like, she's, a, she's dying. I think these, these, uh, these guards of some kind have been chasing her down and, and, and attacked her, and she had a bun up. And of course, Usagi stumbles across her. She's dying in this alley, and she says, oh, you must bring this to the lord, like this warlord. Well, not a warlord. I don't know. He wasn't the shogun. You get the idea. Yeah. And she said, it's, it's the most important. It's the, it will change 
Japan for the better. You must, you must keep this safe. And he was like, all right, whatever. You know, cause Yusagi is always kind of indifferent. Yeah. So he goes through the rest of that, that episode. He doesn't know he's got the bundle all bundled up and everyone's ch- all these people are chasing him. They're trying to kill him to get this thing. He doesn't know what it is. And he keeps saying like, this better be important. Whatever this thing is, it better, it better be important. My, my honor doesn't allow me to open it before it's delivered, but this better be, this better be something big. It better be a cure for all diseases. He's thinking along those lines, you know? So eventually, after he overcomes all the foes and he drags himself to the home of the guy that he's got to deliver this package to, and he, uh, I wish I could remember the exact quote, but he gives, he, he gives it over to the guy and he says, you know, this thing was caused me a lot of trouble. I hope it's worth it. It's brought me nothing but pain and death and, and misery. And then he just turns to leave. And the guy opens it up. He unwraps the package. And as he's unwrapping it, he says, oh, if only you knew this does not bring pain and death, but life. And he looks down. It's a crucifix. Oh, wow. And I was blown away because I had no idea in the story what it was going to be. Yeah. So it was it was I love that. I love that kind of thing. You read a whole book of adventure and 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 at the last panel, it hits you what the whole thing was about. Right. And it's about the the, the faith being brought to Japan. So I, I love that. I don't think you have to be overt all the time. And 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 I and I and I love the idea of just slipping these messages in something that the first priority is fun and engagement. Right. And I think you obviously agree with a lot of that with because your work would show the same thing. And they all of ours does like we we pride ourselves on uh, what we call craftsmanship, which is we don't everything is done deliberately. There's a reason why we draw why I draw things a certain way. There's a reason why we tailor our script a certain way. And a lot mm-hmm. of it is designed to be subversive. Um, subversiveness has been used by the postmodern era as a bad thing because they're trying to Trojan horse like an agenda. Mm-hmm. So we said, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with that because it happens a lot. <laughs> but there's a way that you can turn the tables because like you were saying, there's a reason why you, re- you remember that particular thing from Usagi Yojimbo simply because it's striking. It's not something you see that often. And I think even Stan Sakai could probably argue that you know he might he might be an atheist for all i know and he could say no i did it because from a historical perspective um the christians were persecuted in japan so Mm -hmm. it made sense from a historical context now if you take away from it that from a religious significance the idea that um this is a powerful thing i mean it works on so many different levels and that's one thing that mark and i have done for our two principal properties um black hops usa gi and common america in Black Ops, what we wanted to do was we Trojan horsed a uh, a story that we played straight with a premise that sounds farcical and stupid. Uh, mm-hmm. We we actually used the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles model because right. most people mm-hmm. don't remember that when that book first debuted, people would laugh at it like, "What the heck is this Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles?" <laughs> Lo and behold, here we are, thirty years later, and it's a household name. Everyone knows it, and and it's respected because the storytelling is so good. Uh, Kevin Eastman and Peter Lair, they said, "No, it's literally about turtles that get mutated and turn into um, kind of fun-loving ninja teenagers." And I mean, the the, the characters are so compelling with Krang, Splinter, April O'Neil, the Shredder. And they just play it straight. So we did the same thing with um, uh, our character USAGI, and, and through his his three volumes and his different incarnations. Now this is something that you might appreciate <laughs> as a Catholic, but I'll tell you a funny story about our other one because this is the one that's pseudo controversial. Not not as much as some people would think, um, but with Common America, people are like, 
Tim, you're a Catholic. Like, what do you what do you have on your cover? Like, it's like this beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. Like, what's going on here? So I'll tell you a funny story about this one. So this was another form of subversion because we had no interest in ever doing a female centric uh, hero. But what happened was this: there was a, a perfect opportunity that presented itself. So in Marvel Comics, you'll notice that all the women now, like whether it be uh, Captain Marvel or anyone they're all like raging feminists um basically they went from like big you know unrealistic um chess to no chess at all to the to the point where they they look like men uh, to mm-hmm. put it frankly so we just thought okay why don't we create a character like everyone loves uh, miss marvel and then she became captain marvel everyone misses carol danvers let's do a a spoof on carol danvers but let's take it a step further um let's let's try to sell it with this cover but so people are thinking that they're going to get some like lewd girly comic or whatever but let's make it wholesome so mm-hmm. wholesome in fact that what will happen is that it will completely subvert their expectations so what happened was we released volume one and you should see how many private messages i got it was like can you do a lewd variant can you do one where, <laughs> like, like her like you can see her chest and i was like no 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 we don't do that we don't do that we don't do that so people read it they've reviewed it and they're like, wow, this book is really, really good. Like, it's a satire. It's its own thing. It's wholesome. Like, you could give it to, like, kids. You could give it to girls. And they're not going to think anything of it. They're going to just be like, wow, this character is so cool. Here we are. We're in our second volume. I have not gotten one single request for a lewd variant. And what That's I told great. Mark is it me. And so what our purpose was, I don't know if you've heard about this or not. It's, a, it's the waifu meme. So again, mm-hmm. this kind of this kind of plays into the the idea of traditionalism making a comeback. So you had, for example, like the audit the thought movement. I think that was started by uh, Jack Posobiec, <laughs> another good Catholic. He was yeah. just like he was like, man, stop looking at these women. They're basically like the you know they're like Sheba. They're they're not good for you. You instead of trying to find girlfriends and hookups, you need to be finding wives. You need to be finding like women who represent. The values that you want and so you have like this also like waifu movement which is like wow why are like 2d anime girls like better than like 3d real women <laughs> and there's a degree of truth to that like if you watch anime like you know yeah the women are beautiful but they're just like oh you, you just you want to like hang out with them like they're so cool so mm-hmm. i told mark i was like our book we're gonna try and make like the ultimate waifu like the most wholesome the most decent uh heroine that we can come up with someone where all the guys are like i want to hang out with her like everyone just wants to propose to her uh because they want that type of person and where we're coming from with that is what i talked about in the beginning when i was a kid and i saw peter parker and mary jane mary jane was a supermodel and she was hot (laughs) but as a kid (laughs) there was never a part of me that lusted for her what Mm -hmm. happened was i taught i told myself when I grow up, I want a wife like that. That's what I want. If you can get the beauty, the good, the good wholesome wife who's waiting for you at the end of the day to come home to, that is what I think is, is wholesome and moral and righteous and I think confirms the, the two genders in their traditional roles while also keeping a healthy reverence for them. So obviously with Common America, we love the character, but you know, one thing I tell Mark is I was like, uh, I tell a lot of the artists that we work with, I said, you just have to make her decent. She's sexy, she's beautiful, but she can never be not unwholesome. She has to represent 
uh, that because we're trying to just tell these men. And I think we've done a good job because, like I said, none of them have asked me for a nude cover. <laughs> they respect her too much as a character where they're like, no, we like where your story is going. We like what you've done with her. We like the fact that she seems like a very dedicated, like, young woman. She clearly has, like, a, a love interest, like a, a childhood sweetheart. We want you to keep on going this course. So between, like, Doug to Naples' form of uh, subversiveness and what we're trying to do, we're hoping that other people follow suit. And, you know, um, I hope and pray that a lot of people who love comics, love pop culture, that um, they, they feel like they can do it based on the things that they read and hopefully anything that we can help with as well. I love that. I love that so much. And, and hearing, hearing that kind of thing and seeing these kind of books really gives me hope. And, and, and I hope, as you said, it does show people that they don't have to be just a spectator. They can get involved. And, they, and if they do get involved, they don't have to leave their values on the sidelines. There's definitely a, a call for this. There's a, there's a market for this. There's a need for this. And, and I hope more Catholics will take up that call. Um, yeah, I was going <laughs> to actually ask you about that exact thing because when I thought about asking you to come on the podcast, I had seen the book and I said, oh, I don't know, but, but <laughs> you know, I'm like, okay, you know, like I'm torn right now because so much of what I see from this guy and so much, it fits exactly with the message I'm trying to get out there. But, but you know, when I, when I realized and I was like, okay, yeah, let's, let's have him on. This is awesome. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you explained all that without me even yes. needing to ask you about it. That's, that's I'll, great. I'll be happy to send you, uh, I think our campaign ends in 10 days. I will send you a complimentary digital copy for one and two so that you can see. And, you know, spoiler alert for people who are listening, volume ties into her faith because she's a Catholic. And that plays a huge role into something that happens um, in the book itself. But for people wondering... We're completely honest. The covers are cheesecake. Basically, mm. it's, we do a bait and switch. So we Trojan horse <laughs> a lot of our people. They're just like, oh, my gosh, it's like a beautiful woman. I got to buy this. And then it's like clean and wholesome, like on the inside. <laughs> and they're like, wait a minute. What did I did I just say it's schnookered? It's like, yeah, but <laughs> traded you something better because, yep. you know, you, you came in because you thought, oh, I'm going to like get something that's kind of maybe lascivious or risque. And it's like, oh, I. I got like a good story that made me feel really great. Like afterwards, and I, I yeah, I would love to read those. I, I love that. I think that idea is fantastic, I, and I hope more people follow after that. And, yeah, and doing depending those on how the, you know, depending on how the tide turns, like I've been I've been playing around with some of her costume design, and maybe later on, like tweaking it a little bit as the character grows, as mm. well. But we're, we're just, we'll give it a shot. Um, I think that what we did, as far as like that type of marketing is concerned. You look at pretty much like every Marvel female nowadays, and they're all covered from head to toe. And I was like, "Yeah." At this point, you might as well wear a burqa. I mean, like, what's the point? So, a lot of it was a, a great deal of uh, subversive design on the front end on our point, but it got it across. Like, we did get people to buy it; they loved it. I think our numbers for that first book, um, we sold just a little bit north of a thousand, and not only did we retain our readership. But as of today, we've grown it by about 700. So um, we're close to doubling it, which is good. It means that people are not only sticking around, but they're telling their friends, like, you need to check this book out. Like, it really it has something that it wants to say. That's great. Yeah, I think, I think you know, like we said, it's all about just getting people in the door, bring them in, and then, you, and then you give them the message, you know, but, but entertain them and give them something compelling up front. It's, it's kind of the opposite of what, 
Marvel did with uh, Disney with uh, the Captain Marvel movie, right? right. They, they completely defeminized the character. And then they let Brie Larson kind of go out there on the press tour and basically just, you know, crap on everybody that might have <laughs> wanted to see a female superhero movie or a superhero movie. Right. So I, I don't know what they, were, <laughs> what they were expecting, but, you know, I feel like they got, they got the backlash that they deserved. Um, yeah, it's the antithesis of, of what, what they should be doing and what we should be doing. But obviously there's an agenda there and they're just going to push it until the wheels fall off, which I hope is soon. Um, but talking a little bit about agenda pushing and things like that, tell me about, because I'm assuming it was a response to a lot of the stuff that was being pushed. How did Thump, the first hundred days, how did that come about? That's a funny story. Um, so my, my, my co-writer and I, Mark, we were very, very big Trump supporters in 2016. And we noticed something because our background is we, um, we work with merchandising. So we're pretty good at looking at the landscape and seeing like what's trending, what's, a, what's something that people really like nowadays, that type of thing. And after Trump won the election, we noticed that there wasn't any pro-Trump pop culture stuff out there. Um, I was specifically thinking to myself, like my whole family voted for Trump. And for Christmas, I was like, I'm going to get them Trump stuff. They're going to love this. There's nothing. All of it was basically like just MAGA hats. <laughs> That's all you could get <laughs> from his website. Mm -hmm. And I thought, why isn't anyone putting anything out? And it's because they were scared, especially all the artists in, uh, in comics and uh, in the visual media. They, they didn't want to lose their jobs. Now, Mark and I, I'm an audiologist by trade. And Mark uh, is uh, an administrative specialist. So he works for three colleges. So we have that degree of like job security because it's the idea that, hey, as long as it's not really inter interfering with your uh, what you do in your in your work, then you can kind of do everything. So basically, you can get as mad as you want. It's not going to affect my position. If they fire me for politics, I'm just going to sue them, frankly, mm -hmm. is what it boils down to. So I said, um, we should do a book. Now, I have rabbits. And the one thing I've noticed about Donald Trump during the election was I said, he reminds me of rabbits. Wait, you, you own pet pet rabbits? Yes. At the time oh, you, we had five. Now we have two. <laughs> you surprised me, sir. Why? Do you have rabbits? No, I was, I was just being sarcastic because. Oh. <laughs> oh okay. I was like, oh. I was like, does he not know my avatar? Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's being sarcastic. <laughs> well, um, think about it this way. So everyone knows what a rabbit is because it's commonplace. Everyone knows since they were children. So Donald Trump is the same way. You know, we, we've all grown up knowing Donald Trump is the rich guy. Mm -hmm. Depending on who you are, you will see a rabbit in two different ways. If you're like me, you love them because they're like cute and they're cuddly and they're affectionate. If you're a farmer, you think that they're destructive because they come into your, uh, into your garden. They eat all of your, of your plants and stuff and they're disruptive. So I told Mark, I said, hey, we've never done a sequential book before, but we've always wanted to. We just never knew when. Why don't we do this? Because we would have no competition. No one wants to do anything like it because they're scared. They're scared they're going to lose their jobs. So Mark was like, okay. Well, coincidentally, at the same time, Brett Smith, who was a co-producer and colorist for Clinton Cash, the adaptation of the Schweitzer book, mm -hmm. he was on Facebook in one of our little messaging groups. And he's like, does no one want to make, like, pro-Trump stuff like there is a market out there for it so Mark and I said if you can get us a publishing deal we'll do it so he said I I have just the person we'll go back to the people who did Clinton Cash 
So we finalized that deal in about a month. Like it was quick. And uh, I think, you know, they warned us, they're like, you're probably going to get a lot of heat for it. And I said, we have, we literally have nothing to lose because this is our job. Like it's not a full-time job for us. It's just a hobby. So we did it. Uh, we have the distinct honor of being the first pop culture uh, pro-Trump book. And I think as of this date, we've already gone through nine printings. We might actually be on our 10th. Um, if you go to Amazon and just type in Thump the first hundred days, you'll see we have over like 200 um, reviews, all pretty much positive. We have like four and a half out of five stars. Um, but yeah. we're very, very happy with the way it turned out. It, it opened up a lot of doors for us. That's how we were able to kind of um, meet some of our friends who are kind of in the DC scene, uh, Jack Posobiec, Sebastian Gorka. Dan Bongino, who at this time is actually having surgery, so um, everyone who's listening, please pray for him. But oh, yeah, these really fine people, all by the way, are Catholic. Uh, Sebastian Gorka mm -hmm. is a Catholic, Bongino is a Catholic, and Bisobic is a Catholic as well. So it, it was a blessing, um, and I'm glad we took the risk on it because it really opened up a lot of do uh, doors for us. I remember when that book launched, and it really did mark a shift in the way that people promoted for Trump, and, and it really opened up the floodgates for what we see now. I, I remember that that was absolutely the first thing that I noticed that was a pop culture promotion for Trump. And I thought this is brilliant. Yeah. And we always try to do that. Uh, Mark and I, I'm not the best artist. He's not the best writer. I think he's a better writer than I am an artist, but we've always prided ourselves on being like clever. I guess. <laughs> like, we, we always see where the market is not paying attention to where it's like, we can actually go in there and, capitalize on it um it's my wife has an accounting degree and she actually told me what it's called it's called the blue ocean um, the idea that if you're too busy developing like uh, retail space on the beach like where the condos are you're missing out on the blue ocean that's like literally right behind you um mm. and that's what you need to start paying attention to now obviously we did some trump parodies so from then on i went to do trump space force with chuck dixon so he was the writer on that mark was a, yep. a, a, an editor and then we did My Hero Magademia, which also went into seven printings. They're on its, it's on its eighth as I speak right now. But what happened was what you just said. Now everyone seems to be doing it. So a lot of people who were scared in the beginning have decided, oh, well, now it's safe. So let's make like our, our pro-Trump stuff. And I think that's great. But it's kind of like, well, we've been there. We've done that. We're going to try and do something else now. I think that... Uh... The, the fearlessness and the cleverness are both on full display in Thump because, for example, I, and I love, I really appreciate this as someone who kind of grew up watching it. I love the depiction of Soros as a play <laughs> on Doc, Dr. Claw from yes. <laughs> Inspector Gadget. That was just, that was, I said, this is brilliant, man. This is, this is the kind of stuff we need to see. That's yeah, amazing. Like that was, he has the cat next to him. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Well, and, and just the because, visual. Go ahead. Well, we, we live in, um, you know, like Scott Adams, I think he, I don't know if he's being tongue-in-cheek or not. He and I, we, we, we follow each other, so I can message him uh, when I have, like, pertinent questions. But uh, he always brings up, like, simulation theory. And I'm like, well, I think simulation theory could just be, uh, I guess, another way of saying, like, design uh, from a religious aspect. But I'm like, mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff is just so, it, like, writes itself. Like, George mm -hmm. Soros is, he's pretty much like a Bond villain. Like, yeah. <laughs> he's untouchable because mm -hmm. I think everything he's doing is relatively above board. I mean, if he's funneling money into organizations to cause chaos, what, what can you do? He's, he's over there. We're over here. Um, it, it is much like a, a cloak and dagger type thing. So I just thought, man, a lot of this stuff just ended up really writing itself because of the, 
the weird times we're living in at, at right at the moment. Yeah, is he, my go-to is he's he's basically Palpatine from back when Star Wars had a moral compass in his plotline. Yeah, <laughs> he's full because he looks like him too. I mean, yeah. he's 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 full on Palpatine. But I, yeah, I thought that Doctor Claw. I said, oh man, I appreciate this. <laughs> this what about is... Diane? I, I always I thought that the the modern or at least for this week. Um, I think Diane Feinstein takes the cake as Palpatine when she told oh, yeah. uh, Amy Coney Barrett, "The dogma lives loudly within." <laughs> That's true. That would be great. That needs to be like a poster. I know. Maybe, right? you, could, maybe you could do that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it depends. A lot of people really want us to keep up with the Walmart stuff. They like the Trump stuff, but Mark and I, um, we don't like milking. Uh, we don't like jumping the shark, so to speak. And that's just right. Like, I think we've yeah. told every joke we've had to tell so far, but you never mm-hmm. know. I'm sure there'll be new material to source from after uh, after all is said and done. So yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So you know, I, I just want to ask you: um, Do you have any ideas? Being that this is kind of the the basic premise behind my whole my whole website and podcast, how can we get Catholics more involved in these kind of things? I mean, how can we? How can we um, encourage them to, to, to move away from just complaining about stuff, which I see an awful lot of. And, and as I've said before, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely guilty. But how can we get them to devote some of that energy to creation, which, which of course, is, is, is a fundamental principle of the faith, right? Like you said, you know, only love, evil cannot create. Uh-huh. And you see that because everything that the left creates is, you know, the meme of the left can't meme is true. Is true. <laughs> so how how do, how can we get? Do you have any ideas? How can we get Catholics more involved in this kind of thing? So there's a um, let's see. There's two ways I can answer that. One, you do have like a direct approach, and at some point, I think that'd be great if you could get Douglas Ernst on your show. So he did Soul Finder. He was the writer for that, mm-hmm. and um, he and I we we bonded over Catholicism. And he was another one who I, I found, and I liked what he had to say. And I didn't find out until months later that he was a Catholic. But I always said, um, I don't think I could die and approach my creator without having done something that was completely 100% uh, faith devoted. And so I yeah. think that that merger between his idea and what I wanted to do uh, really coalesced together. So I was very, very happy to work on that first volume. But he's a very outspoken Catholic. He has a direct approach. He doesn't hide the fact that his, his work is very Catholic in nature. But I think that, to your point, there's two things that we can do. One is hard, and I think one is easy. The hard one is create your own content. But that's easier said than done. I've, I've known several independent creators who really want to put the money where their mouth is, and so they create their own books. The only problem is they're not good. And mm. like, it's harsh, but uh, I'm just saying. And I'm not going to point anyone out, but I've been approached by several people. They're like, take a look at my work, and I look at it. And nowadays, I don't review books anymore because um, I'm like man I would hate to review a book by someone very well intentioned but it's very it falls flat or it comes out too preachy or it's patronizing or whatever so that's hard and it costs money to do it I think that what needs to happen is I think that in the second option you rally around distinctly Catholic creators so for mm-hmm. example when you have a guy like Mel Gibson who's a very talented actor and director Mm-hmm. When he's being smeared for something or when he has something that he puts out, you support him and you don't hide your Catholicism. That should be something that you're not only proud of, but you should actually reinforce. Um, that's why I, I like the Catholic Coalition for Trump. 
because it's easy to kind of find out like hey who's catholic who's not and you got you have the guys like Kosovic and gorka who they don't hide behind their faith they they talk about it openly i mean like jack will post where which church he's in uh sebastian mm. gorka will actually say like you know pray the rosary these mm. are men who don't you don't have to find out what they are by reading their personal life on Wikipedia. We'll put it that way. <laughs> they have it as part of their identity. And I think that if Catholics were more unified in highlighting who those individuals are, I think overall they're going to be like, man, Catholics really, they do a lot of good stuff. Like what is, what is, the, what is the deal with that? And hopefully a lot of young um, Catholic and, and, and other Christian creators, they see it and they're, they're moved or their influence to take their own action because that's that's again the hard part is um, I think there's a lot of creators out there who really want to get into the fight but um, they have to hone their craft because what they have to put out is not going to win over hearts and minds now I think that um, it's a it's a question of quality versus quantity and I don't believe that the two are mutually exclusive you have a ton of quality catholic content out there that's great if you have a little bit of it but you have a huge quantity of mediocre works i think that being out there and being seen is just as important i agree 100 percent with all that that's and that's excellent um this is this has been incredibly good i would certainly love to have you back on at some point too i don't want to monopolize too much of your time but oh, you're uh, fine. that would be um i'd love to have you back on and talk about all this stuff in the near oh, future and yeah. maybe how things are developing. Um, I'm going to put links to all your work and your, and your websites in the description of this podcast. But before we go, is there anything in particular that you'd like to say or mention that we didn't cover? No, I think we covered a lot of things. I, I love it. I mean, there's so many things we could talk about. I like talking about politics and I like talking about religion, but it's rare that we're able to talk about both and then you throw in pop culture in there as well and it's like oh we could spend hours talking about it um we have several books that are online iconiccomics.com that's our, our publisher for crowdfunded books so it's a first come first serve for people who want to check it out they can find soul finder there too so for the the catholics who uh, want something that definitively catholic 100 percent, that's the book to check out we've talked about our other works as well black ops in common america those are for sale also um, common america volume two is up for pre-order right now on Kickstarter. At the time of this recording, I think there's 10 days left, but we're going to go to Indiegogo for our um, our liquidation. So for two weeks, we're going to be running a campaign there just to sell off what we have extra, and then anything remaining will go back into Iconic Comics. But definitely, you know, um, follow me on Twitter. You can find me on uh, at Potustump. That's P-O-T-U-S-T-H-U-M-P. On Twitter, on Instagram, I'm Ninja Inc. N-I-N-J-A-I-N-K. Um, but I want to thank Christopher again for having me on. This has been a really robust and I think very productive conversation. And I, I want to say, uh, you know, peace be with you, man, because I, I really think that this is important. I'm glad that you're using your platform to highlight a lot of um, Catholics and uh, hopefully be able to win over a lot of the pop culture that I think is just as necessary um, besides political battles. Well, thank you. That means a lot. I mean, you know, through the grace of God and the intercession of Our Lady, I hope to get the message out there. And, and I want to I want to definitely thank you. This has been a fantastic talk. And um, I would sincerely love to have you back on before too much time goes by and, and, and continue discussing these topics. This was excellent. Thank you very much. I'll be sure to send you all of my works as well so that uh, we can talk about it. You can you can tell us what we're missing, what we can improve upon, what you like. But uh, anytime you need um, references for people you might want to have on your show. I'll be more than happy to put in a good word for you. But 
I really appreciate it. Uh, God and peace be with you um, and have a good one. Thank you so much. God bless you. Timothy Lim. We'll speak to him again soon. Bye. Bye, guys. Well, that was Timothy Lim. I hope you enjoyed this episode and our discussion. Links to all of Timothy's work, how to purchase it, are in the description for this podcast. If you did enjoy the episode, please share it. Please also have a look at the rest of the content on Sequel Virtues, as well as our merch shop. And consider contributing to the Patreon so I can bring you even more content and great guests like Timothy. Until next time, I'm Christopher Lawrence. And even next time, I'll still be Christopher Lawrence. May God bless you and Our Lady keep you.